reprise that for a moment before we continue. If you look at the media out within our culture, this is the idea you get. There is an irreconcilable con uh, sort of conflict between the realms of science and the realms of faith. Consult no less than seven covers of Time magazine, five covers of Newsweek magazine, and a variety of others. Uh, there's just this perception that there's this tension between the realm of science and the realm of faith, uh, and some would push it to the point, say it's you know it, it's uh, it is that they're not reconcilable. It's just that they simply just move in different worlds. And then you get, you, did you like that creed we used earlier? Of course, that's not a creed. We just created it, okay? <laughs> uh, what I did is I lifted up words from the United Methodist Book of Discipline. From section two, we looked at last week, which is a statement about the official United Methodist position on science and faith. And I thought it sounds creedal to me, so we just made it. So we have a new creed this week. Uh, we belong to a, to a tradition that says there's not a fundamental conflict between science and faith that they are in fact compatible, that science has its legitimate realm, although there was that little proviso there, we do not give science, you know, say that science has the final word on matters of faith. So there's, there's two realms there. So this series falls into kind of three sort of uh, smaller series. The first, to get a handle on this idea of conflict, is there such a conflict? Is it real? And if so, wherein does it reside? We're going to take three weeks to look at faith, what do we actually mean by that? Not everything about faith, but the parts of faith that are relevant to this discussion. And then we want to look next week at science. What is scientific method? What is the realm of science? What can science actually do? What is within its uh, purview? What is beyond its purview? And then we want to look uh, two weeks in a day at the whole issue of this conflict and something called naturalism, which is an outgrowth of science. And many scientists will tell you is not science. And other scientists will tell you is science. So we'll begin there. Then we'll move into sort of the part for me that's the most exciting, some of the recent developments in science. Uh, the Big Bang, cosmology, quantum physics, the work of Einstein, relativity. And believe it or not, all these kinds of things are having a direct impact on discussions within the faith community as well as within the science community. And at the end, we'll take four weeks to kind of take all this mush and see how it kind of fits into a variety of topics. So some of the topics we cover today in the next couple weeks, we'll touch again in more detail as we deal with that. So uh, that's the big picture behind this series. And so before we deal with the relationship between science and faith, a couple of weeks just to kind of clarify what these terms mean. And again, the reason is there's a lot of distortion. Uh, this is one of several uh, little posters out there. Uh, we have the fossils, we win. So it's that whole conflict kind of methodology saying, by the way, uh, the only evidence that counts is what? The fossils, which is what kind of evidence? Scientific, empirical. So that's a whole discussion we'll get into. Uh, so today we want to look at what we mean by faith. Now, common sense would say, the most fundamental issue for faith is God. Wouldn't common sense dictate that? Now, unfortunately, common sense is not always correct, okay? Uh, at least in terms of the topic of science and faith and the relationship between science and faith, the issue of God is not the first importance. It is not even of second importance. It's tertiary. It's third. 
There's a couple of other issues that are even more fundamental than the issue of God because all the important decisions are made before we even get to the topic of God. So we want to look at that. The most fundamental thing about faith, and this would be true not just for our faith, but particularly for Judaism and Islam, Eastern religions uh, a little more loosely so, is how it is we view reality? What is real and what is not? Now, as my grandpappy said, we got a dog in that fight, okay? What is real? What is not real is a matter of significance to us. Um, the idea is that behind all that we see, all that we perceive, faith, our faith tradition would say, there is a greater reality. That is, so it's not just what you can see and perceive with your five senses, but there's a reality behind that. Uh, there's more to the world than we see. It's kind of like the artwork says. We look, uh, we look at the stars and we look at the, the, the universe as it presents itself to us through the senses. And behind that, we can see something else at work here. We talk about, this is, this is language, you talk about something being transcendent. You've heard that term, right? Now, note, notice the first part of that word. We talk about stuff being metaphysical. Now, that term has kind of fallen out of favor, particularly in the realm of philosophy, but the word is still there. Supernatural. Now, that'll get some people worked up real quick, you know. Uh, you know, talk about the conflict between science and the supernatural. You know, but that's traditional language. What's interesting about those three words is that all three are essentially the uh, ways of saying the same thing. There's more. There is a trans, there is a meta, there is a super, there simply is another level of reality beyond what we normally see. Uh, now that is the reality that the people of faith normally refer to as the spiritual. When you're talking about the trans, when you're talking about the medical, the super, you're talking about the spiritual dimension. Uh, spiritual is by definition, by definition, it is not material. You know, it can be material or spiritual. These are different kind of categories. Uh, it's not an empirical kind of reality. It deals with another aspect or another dimension of our existence. For people of faith and for the faith tradition, reality cannot be simply reduced to the empirical alone. Reality is more complicated than that. It is more nuanced than that. There's more going on than that. Just as being human, and this is some of the, the, the language being used, uh, for example, by the neo-Darwinians and then also within the, the biology community, are we just wires and chemicals? Okay, Wires refers to the neurons of the brain. And obviously, we know that the, the, the neurons of the brain have an effect on who we are. Just have a stroke. Okay, And there's a direct connection. Chemicals. We can put chemicals into us that will have, us, will have all kinds of strange experiences. Now, some of us actually survived the 1960s, okay? <laughs> uh, my generation experimented a lot with that kind of stuff. But is that all we are? And there's this huge debate going on within the biological community, within the scientific community, as to whether or not you can account for everything in terms of wires and chemicals or in terms of DNA. Or is there something about being human that simply is beyond that? Um, to quote Paul at the speech of the Areopagus in Athens, he's actually quoting a Greek philosopher here, uh, there's this larger reality that we're part of in which we live and move and have our being. We would call that the universe. Now, there are out there something called reductionist views. And we'll look at this next week, uh, two weeks from today in more detail. But reductionist views essentially try to reduce reality to just. 
it's just this or it's just that. It's just materialistic. It's just empirical. It's just scientific. And the idea there is that, that with one tool, you can explain all the nuances there is and everything is covered and explained. And that's an intensely hot debate, even within the scientific community. Um, so reductionist views would say reality is just basically what you can, you know, it's not just matter, because as Einstein proved, matter and energy are just two sides of the same thing. But is matter and energy, time and space, is that all there is? Or are we just wires and chemicals? Um, and the view that faith takes is that's not adequate to explain either the reality that we call the universe or the reality that we would call the person, whether it's defined as consciousness, soul, or however you want to define that. Um, now, that belief that there is more, there is a meta, there's a trans, there is a super, I would submit to you that is the most fundamental dimension of belief for people of faith. Because if you say no to this, then God, by definition, is eliminated except being explained somehow materialistically. Like uh, the Soviet uh, cosmonaut who went up in space, Yuri Gagarin. The, the story's not true, but the apocryphal story is he went to heaven and didn't see God, therefore God does not exist. Well, what kind of a God would you actually see? And would that actually be God? That's an interesting discussion of itself. So, ironically, science makes the same claim. And I don't know if you know this or not, but fundamental to science today is that beyond is that this is fundamental to science. Your senses can uh, can can uh, let you down. They can be wrong. Behind and above and beyond what we see is this fundamental forces, laws of the universe, particles, all that stuff of fundamental physics. That's not readily apparent. Some of it is even counterintuitive. You want to talk about counterintuitive, delve into the world of quantum physics. Okay. <laughs> counterintuitive. Stuff that makes sense doesn't make sense. Okay. There's another core belief that even predates God. So first of all is that it's not just reality is more nuanced. Secondly, how do we know? We're talking of the fancy $2 word is epistemology, theory of knowledge. How do we know what we know. Where does the knowledge come from? Is empirical data the only form of knowledge there is? Or in fact, are there other forms of knowledge that may be equally valid? Now within the faith community, what do we call knowledge? What's the term we use? Revelation. Okay, Not just the book in the Bible, but revelation is the sense that, that we have we have a re revelation to reveal, to make known. We have some things that are made known to us, some information that's out there. Um, and this has to do with the spiritual realm. We know about the spiritual not just through the senses, but through this thing called revelation. It's been revealed to us. Uh, for people of faith, revelation is a source of knowledge. No, it is not empirical. No, it is not traditional science, <coughs> but from the faith community, we'd argue it is, in fact, a form of knowledge. And by the way, some of the brightest minds in the world would agree with that, okay? This is not something that, 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 you know, that just weirdos who've fallen off the edge of the table would, would affirm. It's affirmed by very, very many sharp people. Uh, 
and that this form of knowledge is in fact just as valid, though distinct from and different from empirical knowledge. It's still there. This revelation gives us insight into the larger reality that we're in which we live, and it gives us insight into who and what we are. Now, obviously, we're starting to overlap with something else here, aren't we? That's the realm of science. So there's some overlap here. Now, historically, and this goes back uh, first century and goes back outside the Christian faith to the Jewish faith, there have been what are called two books or two sources of revelation. Uh, and this, by the way, is still being written out there in the 21st century. There is what's called the book of nature. The fundamental affirmation that you can learn some things about matters of faith. You can learn some things about the universe and even about God without having a Bible. That you simply can perceive the universe. And through your senses and through your awareness of the universe, so you won't get a doctrine of the Trinity out of that, okay? But there are some things that can come to you there. Uh, this is also what is called general revelation and the idea that it's not special, it's not specific. It's, it's like Einstein's general theory of relativity. You know, counts in all cases everywhere for everybody. Uh, so we can know some things about God through senses of the reading. The other is the book of Scripture. This is also called special revelation. Why is it special? Because it's not, it doesn't come naturally. It does not come through the senses or through reason. It's not immediately apparent to everybody automatically. Somehow, somewhere, some kind of a special something came, whether it's Moses at Mount Sinai or it's the message of Jesus or it's you know, Gautama Buddha or whatever it is. That, that somehow there's some knowledge that came to us that wasn't automatically apparent, but has come to us so through some kind of a special conduit. Uh, this idea goes back to Philo of Alexandria, who was a Jew. Uh, Philo believed that these two, uh, general revelation and, and special revelation or sp specific revelation, complemented each other and that they both counted. This was picked up in the early church fathers at the very beginning of our tradition. Have you ever heard of a guy named St. Augustine? Okay. If you ever want, as my teacher said, said, said Augustine, city in Florida. <laughs> Augustine saint okay he, augustine talked about the book of the heavens if you look up at the starry night two and two is four and you can begin to kind of draw some conclusions about that john christossum which means silver mouth he apparently was quite the speaker uh mark craig look out paul look out uh <laughs> except he's long gone he declared that nature just the natural order to be a book Revelation. Matter of fact, we got a quote from him I thought you might like. Upon this volume, looking out the starry night, okay, or looking in nature, the unlearned as well as the wise man shall be able to look, and wherever anyone may chance to come, doesn't make any difference, wherever you are, seashore, mountains, whatever, there looking upwards toward the heavens, he will receive a sufficient lesson from the view of them. So this is a classic definition of general revelation. Some things you can intuit simply by perceiving the universe. Um, the idea, of course, is that God is revealed in nature. Uh, and this God is the same God that's affirmed in Scripture. Now, is this scriptural? You know this. The heavens are telling the glory of God. 
The firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, uh, uh, the days speak. The days are speaking to you. The fourth speech. The night to night declares knowledge. The night will speak to you. There is no speech, nor are there words, literally. Night and day does not talk, but their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out <laughs> through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. What may not be as familiar to you is that Paul, in the letter to Romans, uses a natural revelation argument to talk about why it is that the Gentiles, who from his viewpoint as a Jew, are not people of faith, do not have Moses' Torah, do not have the Bible, do not have the specific revelation, yet God would still hold them accountable. Why? Because they still have revelation, just not Moses. For what can be known about God was plain to the pagans, the Gentiles, because God has shown it to them. Well, how did God do that? Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. Classic argument for general revelation. Now, I um, thought you might get a kick out of this. Um, who's the guy who talked to the animals? They talk back, okay? <laughs> this is Job. This is, I, it's got to be humorous. Ask the animals. They'll teach you, okay? The birds of the air. They will tell you. The plants of the earth. Now, if you start talking to your bushes, okay, <laughs> uh, just do it quietly by yourself. I don't think the neighbors want to know this, but plants can teach you. The fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? So in all three instances, the argument is, whether you buy it or not, the argument is some things we can know simply by being observant. Now, in today's world, this would be the design argument, saying that from design of the universe, there are certain <coughs> laws of mathematics, laws of physics. There appears to be a design. The universe appears to be hardwired for life, hardwired for consciousness, the anthropic principle, all that kind of stuff. Well, what does design imply? It implies designer. And that's the classic argument for this kind of general revelation that that you can extrapolate from that um, natural revelation simply deals with what you can know about God in matters of faith through creation you don't need a Bible you don't need anything special um, here's the basic idea if the author of nature and the author of scripture are the same God and people of faith would say yes then the two books in fact have the same message even if, in fact, they're very different from one another. They would at least be, in the words of our discipline, complementary, okay? They would not be at odds with each other, although they do it in fundamentally different ways. Now, this is where science and religion overlap. It is the realm of general revelation. And so for most of this series, the next 10 weeks, this is where we're going to focus. Our primary focus is on general revelation because general revelation and science deal with the same thing. Uh, this is where all the discussion is. Both deal with the larger reality of the universe, what, where it comes from. Now, if you're arguing from a scientific viewpoint, you might be arguing <coughs> for the Big Bang, 
which, by the way, has serious religious overtones. Or you might be want to argue that the universe is a sort of a, uh, a closed system. It's always been, always will be, had no beginning. Uh, that one's come up again recently. Uh, so we're going to be focusing on that in the series. Um, now, but for a few moments, I want to just take a little sidestep, okay? There is another form of revelation, specific revelation, and we're not going to deal with it for the next 10 weeks. So I thought it's worthwhile this morning just to raise it up and just, you know, make us aware of what is going on here. Uh, special revelation, uh, which, by the way, is where most of the content of our faith comes from. Um, Special revelation is the primary source. For example, how do we know that God is triune? Not by looking at the stars. Okay? You don't get the Trinity by watching a sunset. Okay? You don't get that Jesus Christ is Lord by looking at the starry night. There are some things that simply do not come to us naturally. They come to us from somewhere else. Uh, we can learn some things about creation, about God. Uh, but most of what we know comes to us the other way. It's a special way, and it does not depend on senses. It does not depend on reason. And by the way, every religious tradition in the world affirms this. Every tradition in the world would have some source, you know, whether if, if you're Hindu, it would be what? The Upanishads? The Bhagavad Gita? If you're Muslim, it would be... If you're Jewish, it would be... If you're Taoist, it would be, you know, just don't down the line. That, that there's some, something that you refer to other than that. Uh, for us, special revelation is, is primarily <coughs> contained in Scripture. As the Book of Discipline of Methodist Church says, Scripture is primary in matters of faith, but it's not exhaustive. It's not limited to it. Uh, for example, we have this whole, whole deal called the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And we would affirm that... that uh, Whatever you mean by that, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit affirms that there's a way that God continues to interact to with us, to speak to us, knowledge comes to us. Uh, our own book of discipline affirms that, that uh, ongoing revelation happens through our experience, both religious experience and our common human experience, as well as the <coughs> human reason. So it's not just scripture, but scripture is primary. Um, the content of this special revelation is distinctly different, categorically different, of an entirely different type of material from that from the scientific world. Uh, the Bible speaks to us about who God is, uh, you know, what, who we are as people and what the relationship is between the two. By the way, uh, I had a Hebrew professor who said, if, if you ever find a Bible passage that's just giving you the dickens of a fit, said, just ask three questions. What does it say about God? What does it say about us as human beings? What does it say about the relationship? It said 99.9999999 to the 16th power of the percentage of the time. That will give you basically what that passage is about. Okay? Most scripture is about those kinds of things. Uh, these are not the realm of empirical science. We'll have next week's, uh, next two weeks, uh, a lot of voices from the scientific community with some quotes speaking to us about this. But for the most part, science is not going to be talking about God, okay? And they're not going to be talking about explicit matters of faith. They're going to be operating in a different, different arena. In the same way, faith is also not limited to the rational. Now, you heard of a guy named Dawkins, one of the new atheists. He makes the comment that Christianity is 
irrational by definition. You know, he didn't have to defend it. He just sticks it out there. Well, I would argue that it's not that religion is irrational. It is meta-rational, which is to say that not everything in life that counts is rational. I mean, you can take a great symphony and analyze it mathematically because music is, in fact, math. But at the end of the day, what moves you? Now, some of us are weird enough that the math moves us, okay? <laughs> Me, not so much, you know. It's just, just enjoy it kind of thing. So, that, you know, that's the meta-rational. It's beyond the rational. More than the rational. Other aspects of being human. Aesthetics, values, all kinds of things. Um, faith holds that the empirical by itself does not constitute what's human, nor does reason by itself. Now, if you've been in this group, in this class uh, last year, you know that the Methodist Church is extremely positive on the use of, reason, use of reason, okay? We lift reason high as a gift from God, but it doesn't do everything. Uh, it does a lot. Uh, just as the physical alone does not encompass the fullness of being human, and the reason does not. There are other dimensions of life. There are other dimensions of being human. So, religious knowledge which is in fact what the content of revelation is, is does not deal with empirical data or facts. The scope of faith is in fact much broader. Now we will see uh, next week when we examine science, the scientific method by definition is very, very narrow and very, very strict, okay? Science has gotten where it has by saying this is what science does. This is what science focuses on. The great minds of science, past and present, will tell you science was never intended to do everything. It deals with this, and it deals with it beautifully. And because it deals with it beautifully, our world has been transformed, but never intended to deal with everything, you know. Faith operates a little bit different than that, a little bit wider kind of scope. For example, science struggles with the issue of how did the universe come into being? Where did it come from? What are the mechanics of that? The question of why is not a scientific question. Okay? Any scientist worth their salt will tell you that. It's not a scientific question. That falls outside the purview of science. Why is what kind of a question? That's a religious question. You know? So a different, different tack on the same material. Uh, science is more narrow and limited and like a laser beam, intensely powerful. Uh, it deals with the empirical, the material, the natural order. Uh, it answers the how questions. Um, human beings, many of our most basic values and beliefs uh, do not uh, rest on empirical observation alone. We're just simply more nuanced than that. Uh, we're more nuanced than reason. Now, the spiritual, if you get into work with that a little bit, what you're going to find out very quickly is that the spiritual is very closely linked to the experiential, okay? It's not just rock and roll Jesus next door, okay? <laughs> There's a very close link between experience and between matters of faith. Now, fa faith has a rational component, sure. But historically, feelings, the realm of experience, very closely linked there. Experiences can take us beyond the realm, uh, take us beyond the math of music. Uh, 
You ever wa- uh, listen on TV on the, the uh, um, some of those channels where they uh, the physicists almost they, they almost go into ecstasy talking about physics? You know, just you know, it's like you know, yeah. There's a dimension of that beyond the math. Okay, there's there's simply more there. Transcendent meaning, religious meaning, mystical kind of meaning. Um, now, one source of conflict, because here's the truth of the matter, from the faith side and from the science side. They're each trying to do the other's business, okay? There are people of science whose statements are not scientific. They're faith statements. There are people of faith who are not making faith statements. They're making science statements. So that, that you know what's going to happen when that happens. It sets you up for some type of conflict. One of the areas is that we're taking the Bible literally. For example, uh, that creation took place in seven days. Never mind, the sun was built, was came into being the fourth. So how long are the first three? And those kind of things. Um, from the beginning of our faith, and our Jewish heritage, the early church, the church fathers, uh, it's been understood that, that while the Bible may have some good solid history in it, there's a lot of stuff there that was never, never intended to be taken literally or historically. It was not just about the facts. Two Genesis stories. You know this. Genesis 2, human beings are created first. Genesis 1, uh, they're created last. Okay, folks, you can't have it both ways. Okay? <laughs> you know, at a literal, literal, factual level, it simply falls apart. Well, the writers of Genesis put those two stories in there side by side. They weren't dumb. Okay? So part of what's going on there is they're telling you. Uh, the, uh, the old rabbis used to say this. Why did... God put both those stories in there, you know. Because A, God had a sense of humor. God just likes to tweak people. Or God forces you to realize that you've got to move beyond that superficial level and think a little deeper than that. Uh, rabbis have wonderful stories about that. Many of the early church fathers, they would have as many as four or five different ways of interpreting Scripture. And by the way, the least important was the literal the factual, you know, that was the least important. Some of the church followers would say that's kind of for the idiots, okay? If you can't do better than that, you know, you can just kind of go with that. But And then they would lift up uh, some forms that we would not even use today. Uh, but essentially what they were talking about was the spiritual meaning. Wonderful statement made by a Roman Catholic cardinal who was alive when um, Galileo was alive, and Galileo quoted this in his trial. Okay, and this was his defense. He said, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Okay, wonderful phraseology. But again, delineating science, matters of science, from matters of faith. One's concerned with how the heavens go, and that would be, is Copernicus right? Or is Ptolemy right? Does the sun revolve around the earth? Or does the earth revolve around the sun? That's a matter of science. Going to heaven is a fundamentally different kind of thing. Although, of course, in that case, they kind of got mixed up with each other. Uh, Different types of knowledge. Of course, there is some overlap. Third fundamental belief. First fundamental belief is there's more. Meta, trans, super. Second fundamental belief is what? Final exam. Are you awake? All knowledge is empirical, correct? Yeah. 
It is, what, what do we lift up? Your vocabulary word for the week, revelation. As a source of information, not about chemical equations, but about the nature of reality and the nature of who we are, the nature of God. Third belief, that behind all that we see, there is a God. God relates to the fact that there is more. God relates to the fact that there is a source of knowledge beyond the empirical. God is directly related to both of those things. We believe that God is a being. So it's not just uh, pure pantheism who would say that basically um, God is just a euphemism for the universe. A little more complicated than that. We believe that God is a being, that God is conscious. Uh, start with Genesis 1-1 and work forward. You get that real quick. Uh, this lies above and beyond what we perceive. Uh, the biblical narrative in our faith tradition says that God is a personal being who cares. Defining characteristic according to the New Testament, and I would argue that the Old Testament as well, is that God loves, God acts, God created the world, sustains it, uh, God providentially. It's not a word we use a lot anymore, but it's a great word, okay? Guides the creation. God does things within the world. God is active within our lives. Uh, there's a purpose behind all that we perceive. By the way, uh, cosmology now, there's a wonderful uh, running debate within, within the sciences as well as within faith and the interface as to whether or not the universe is purposeful. Is the universe hardwired for life? There's a little math we're going to deal with. You know, we don't bring a lot of math in here, but there's one you got to know. There's one piece of math you got to know. What are the chances of a universe that would produce sentient life? Statistically, zero. And that's from a mathematical proof, not from a person of faith. Uh, adjust any of the fundamental parameters. Did you also get shown on Discovery Channel this week? One quadrillion, what was the number? One with 16 zeros behind it. Take one of the fundamental forces of the universe, of which there are a lot, shift it up or down one quadrillionth. All the, here's the image they used. All the sands on the seashores of the world. Take one sand piece of, one grain of sand off. This is, this is science, okay? This is science that was out, out on TV this week. Or put an extra one in. And in the universe, it can no longer sustain life. That was one of the fundamental parameters. And the same is true. Either stars don't form. We just stay helium and hydrogen and lithium. Or they don't last long enough. Carbon's never produced. Anyway, we'll have fun with that in a few weeks, okay? <laughs> I drift. <laughs> I got <laughs> caught up in my moment there. Okay. Uh, that the universe is going somewhere. It has its final end in God. Now, this is what is called the meta-narrative of the Bible. It's that larger picture within which everything else operates. Now, <laughs> if you're going to go into creation or the Exodus or Israel or the prophets or Jesus or any doctrine, all these fit inside the meta-narrative, which is that there is a being behind all we see. The being is inner from which the universe came. The being is interacting with this universe in ways. That's the meta kind of narrative. 
And behind that, we get a lot of details. Quote the Bible. In the beginning, God. That's the premise. Okay. Remember the Apostles' Creed? How does it begin? We believe in God, Father. It's interesting, not Creator, but Father. Almighty Maker. There's your Creator image, heaven and earth. Article 1, the Methodist Creed. Articles of Religion. There is one living and true God everlasting without body or parts of yada, yada, yada. Okay. Now, anybody here from the Presbyterian tradition, the Reformed tradition? Okay. Heidelberg Confessions, wonderful. Okay. Rarely do I agree with Calvinists, but on this one I've <laughs> got to go with them. Okay. <laughs> Providence is the almighty and ever, this is poetry, almighty and ever present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, beautiful image, all state move over, heaven and earth and all these creatures, and so rules them with leaf and blade, rain and drought, fearful and lean, frustrated poet, okay, food and drink, health and sickness, poverty and prosperity, all things in the fact come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. That could fit the contemporary cosmological argument as it's being hammered out right now in the realm of science. Is this true, or is it blind chance? It's a wonderful debate going on. Okay? This is the central to our faith. This is not peripheral. Um, now, one final deal, and then we're done for today. This is a fact. The faith is always expressed in a worldview. The worldview may change, and it has numerous times, but it's always. It has to. We simply cannot make sense of it. The early church uh, father, Augustine, uh, even had a term for this. He called it accommodation. Here, uh, he said, God accommodates uh, the revelation, wherever it comes from, to where people are. In other words, was Moses ready for Einstein's specific relativity theory, E equals MC squared? Was Moses ready for that? Probably not. Einstein was. Okay? The truth was always there, but comedy. Uh, John Calvin, again, I don't quote Calvin a lot, but there's some good stuff here. God patiently, throughout our history, accommodates his ways of revelation to our condition. In the written word from which he speaks, you know, God is accommodating himself to us. Somebody once had the image, what if, if, you, if you have a little wire and you try to put too much current through it, what happens? Fry the wire, okay? We can only handle so much. So the, the understanding is, is that the knowledge that comes to us, we're only ready to handle so much at a particular time through accommodation. This includes ideas, language, concepts, as well as the science of the day. And so science has been changed. For example, early on it was the Hebraic world. Then they got thrown into captivity in Babylonia. And by the way, Genesis chapter 1 is Babylonian. That's the Babylonian creation myth that the biblical writers pulled in, tweaked, and changed it. Then it got pulled over into Greek. First Plato. That lasted a good thousand years. And in the late Middle Ages, we decided we'd like Aristotle better. And by the way, it's not accidental that Plato ignored the physical reality. Aristotle took the physical reality seriously. And within a couple of lifetimes after moving to Aristotle, what is born? Science. Direct connection. There's some wonderful books out there. Then we moved into Newton. We moved into Copernicus. 
Start with Copernicus, end with Newton. We get the modern worldview, then we get, that's so yesterday. Now we're <laughs> post-Einstein kind of thing. Uh, each of these worldviews contain the science of its age, people understood. And so that, that's just a part of what we are. We're always going to have that. Uh, you can confuse the two, as in the case of Galileo. Remember the famous Galileo story? What was the issue? Yeah. The issue was uh, that Copernicus had this new theory that the earth, in fact, moved around the sun. Now, the problem was not that he was wrong, but he didn't have the science to back it up, okay? Uh, common sense, sunrise, sunset, right? The empirical data says sun goes up, sun goes down. It's the consensus science of the day. By the way, all the universities of Europe were teaching Ptolemaic, not Copernicus. And per Copernicus had no new data. He was right, but he had no new data. And so, you know, uh, that all kind of got tangled up. So we're going to move on here. Um, one last deal here. Because the faith is always tangled in the worldview, and because the worldview and the science can change at any moment, we can never baptize a particular science. We can't say, we like Ptolemy. Therefore, we're going to stay with Ptolemy forever. Because Copernicus might be right. Well, Copernicus wasn't right. Einstein was right. Well, maybe Einstein's not right. We now have, an, you know, and that kind of thing goes on. This is why our Book of Discipline says we preclude science from making authoritative claims about matters of faith. We express our faith in the conceptuality of the day, but we ain't married to it. It's a tool. Would you stand as we join together in whatever the closing <laughs> hymn is? <laughs> Shouldn't have got caught up in that moment earlier. <laughs> Number 332. We'll sing the first and the fourth verses. <laughs> 